0: Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and fresh airs Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com
1: slash events. The broadcast center this is take two me martinez president-elect biden is planning to unveil an immigration plan tomorrow pathway to citizenship reunifying families but we'll hear how much can actually get done plus how clear is the difference between a protest riot or insurrection civics teachers are having these conversations with students making them teachable moments it's all ahead on take two stay with us From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us today. Coming up.
2: If you don't know how the country runs, how are you going to be an effective member of society? Are you just going to go to work every day, come home, sit on your couch and watch Netflix?
1: Kind of like what I do each and every single day. We're going to hear from teachers and students on how current events are being taught in the classroom and find out why researchers say there's a need to strengthen civics education in California. But first, yeah, California has hit another unfortunate milestone when it comes to coronavirus cases, three million so far. And in Los Angeles County, it's been reported that one in three people, one in three, have been infected with the virus at some point since the pandemic began The spread is still alarming, but with thousands of vaccinations underway, the question now is whether the worst is behind us. Here to talk about all of this and answer all of our coronavirus questions, we have with us again Professor Paula Cannon, a virologist at the USC Keck School of Medicine. Professor, welcome back. I was just at Keck uh, last week. I, I dropped someone off. At, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, right there. They couldn't I say. See you. Hi, yeah, I could not say hi. It's very hard to get in unless you have an appointment. But uh, okay, so we have a lot to get to today. Uh, a report sure. from the San Jose Mercury News this weekend suggests the winter surge might be leveling out now for LA County specifically. Can you give us your sense of the state of things right now for us here?
3: Yeah, I think I would characterize it as we're holding our breath. know we've been going straight up in terms of numbers now for several weeks but just for the last few days we seem to be leveling off and coming down from our peak so you know it's still really serious um you know averaging thirteen thousand new cases a day over 200 deaths a day but the cases are down from where we were a couple of weeks ago and the positivity rates you know the number of people getting tested who actually have a positive result that's also dipped from our crazy high peak of about 20 percent a couple of weeks ago we're now down to Closer to sort of 14%. So holding our breath that this is real.
1: Now and when you say leveling, leveling off, that I mean we're we're at a, such a high number that leveling off still means the number's high. It's not like everything's mm-hmm. fine and everything goes back to normal.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true actually. There you go. Statistics, yes. It's so I'm 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 a glass half full person, so I'm <laughs> excited we're leveling off. But yeah, we are at a unacceptably high peak right now.
1: I'm glad you still are, Professor, because a lot of <laughs> us aren't anymore. Now, the uh, LA Times reported today that uh, California hit 3 million cases. Johns Hopkins uh, reported that as well. And we received a lot of questions about it because uh, it sounds alarming. But could you put that into context for us since we do live in a, in a very large state here in California?
3: Yeah, we do. We're the biggest state. So 3 million is, is high, but there's nearly 40 million of us in California. So this basically means that probably about one in 10 um, that we know about in the state have had coronavirus. And and again, for context, this is a cumulative number. So it's the number over basically the last 10 months. That's why we got there. So very big number, but that's the kind of context, a very big state and 10 months to build up to that.
1: Yeah, so it is over a long period of time. It's not necessarily a snap. It's a snapshot of a long period of time, is I guess yeah. is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, all right, to the news uh, this week and about the new variant. Uh, on Saturday, LA County Public Health uh, confirmed that uh, the UK variant that you and I talked about has been identified here. Uh, and now there are reports of yet another different strain. Uh, what can you tell us about the new variant and how different that one is?
3: Yeah, so California now has its very own variant. Um, it's been called Cal 20C. And this one also looks to be pretty widespread in California and Southern California. Cedar Sinai um, have been doing some analysis and they estimate that about a, third of, about a third of the infections they saw before Christmas were down to this strain. So I think we're going to start seeing more of these variants um, that are becoming widespread because now we are actually looking for them. You know, We're doing the level of, we call it sequencing of these viruses mm-hmm. that we need to do to have that information.
1: And, and what does sequencing do for this?
3: Okay, so instead of like just detecting the virus using the, the PCR assay, which is you know the nasal swab that people are probably familiar with mm-hmm. by now, which just looks for a tiny piece of the virus. This looks at the whole of the genetic material of the virus. It really gets a very detailed set of information about the virus. And in that way, we can start to see even tiny little differences that might change between the virus in one person or another, and we can start to see if any of those particular variants are becoming more dominant, which might suggest that they are more infectious, for example.
1: So does it, uh, in a sense, give you a tail of the tape between one strain and another?
3: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, You know, we can use it to sort of um, really make suggestions about, you know, where outbreaks may have come from. Um, But again, the thing that we're sort of looking at and concerned about right now is whether any of these new variants that might, you know, come up, whether they're coming up because they're more infectious which is going to be bad news in terms of our ability to try and stop this virus. Or even more worrying, although still extremely hypothetical, is whether um, this reflects the virus mutating to maybe start to uh, evolve to counteract our immune system, you know, um, including from vaccinations.
1: Anything we need to be concerned about? I know it's early, but anything we should be worried about yet?
3: Not, not yet. I mean, I, I gave you a worst case scenario and it's, it's very hypothetical. But you know, what is good is we are now aware of this problem. And all this analysis has been done, this sequencing, you know, we're doing a lot more of it. So if any variants do start to come up, we'll at least know about it and we won't be caught off guard.
1: Do we know yet, uh, Professor, what this means uh, in terms of vaccines? I think the main questions people always have when we hear news of a variant is the vaccine. Is it still effective? Is it still worth taking?
3: Sure. So I think the good news is that, um, you know, when you get a vaccine, you mount what we call an immune response and it's multifaceted. You know, your immune system has backup plans in place so that even if a virus changes a little bit and, for example, becomes resistant to one type of antibody that you might make, that's okay because your immune system has made lots of different types of antibodies that all stick to different parts of the virus. So I think it's really unlikely that a virus would evolve, that, you know, there wasn't some component of our immune system that was able to squash it.
1: With all these mutations happening, how important is it that we get as many people vaccinated as possible?
3: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. This virus mutates super slowly, but because there's been, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of people infected, we're giving it more and more chances for that extremely rare variant to arise. So it's really important that as we get more people vaccinated and other measures that we put in place to reduce the amount of virus out in the community, we're going to reduce the ability of the population of viruses to um, you know, evolve in, into something that had an advantage as far as the virus was concerned, but really is something that we don't want to see.
1: With all of these infectious strains, I wonder if you have some advice for us on how to best double down, so to speak, with our our social distancing, other practices such as wearing masks and washing our hands. I mean, is everything most of us have been doing still good enough? Do we need to step it up somehow?
3: Okay, I'm going to be your mother here. We need to step it up. You know, everybody knows what to do, but we now need to do it more perfectly for the next few weeks. So get a better mask. You know, if your mask is always falling down over your nose... Get a good, stiff, semi-disposable, rigid one with a nose clip that keeps it over your nose. And importantly, I think, to remember that, you know, you you don't get a gold star just for wearing a mask. A mask is not an excuse to stand closer to people or to hang out with more people. The most important thing you can do is reduce the number of people you interact with and stand further apart. And these are still the main things to do. So hopefully everybody knows this by now and hopefully everybody can really... Double down. We've we've got vaccines coming. The the you know light at the end of the tunnel. But we really need to double down at this moment.
1: I would hope so too, Professor. Just I think you know the fatigue's part of it. Uh, sometimes people don't want to do these things. That's another part of it. I just saw someone walking out of a supermarket. Had a mask on, right? Great, right? Walked out of the supermarket. Took the mask off and then rubbed their eyes. They had I, to my view, they hadn't yeah. done anything to clean their hands yet. Um, so, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's this discipline that I think is almost supernatural that we need to have at this moment, whether we want to or are able to or not.
3: I, I said, I'm going to be your mother and I'm just mm. going to tell everybody what we're doing is not good enough. I have friends who post on social media, hashtag no masks, you know, showing themselves, you know, on a beach Oof. drinking. And I'm like, where's wow. the unfriend button when you need it? You know, so I don't know what's wrong with people. I really mm. don't. But I'm just telling everybody who's reasonable out there listening to the show. Step it up. It's only going to be a few more weeks or months. Let's just step it up.
1: Talking to uh, Professor Paula Cannon, a virologist uh, with the Keck USC uh, USC Keck School of Medicine. Now about the rollout of the vaccinations. uh, If letters from listeners uh, are any indication, uh, Professor, there is a lot of confusion. We're trying to get specific answers from the county, but from where you sit, how is LA and California uh, doing when it comes to these vaccinations?
3: Okay, so a slow start, but that's understandable. And I think you know the start was always going to be slow. We're doing the healthcare workers first, and there's two and a half million of those in California. So it's not a trivial group of people. So far, we've done about, I think it's 865,000 people. We've still got ways to go. And we just heard today that now vaccine um, appointments are opening up for people over 65. So I think, you know, we're going to get the logistics in place, slow start. California, you know, once we get going, especially if people can drive there in the cars, you know, I think it's going to become much more efficient and will really speed up.
1: On that uh, 65 and older uh, being able to get vaccinated soon, L.A. County was very clear about not having enough vaccine to do that. Do you have any insight as to how now that's achievable?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the good news is you can sign up for an appointment and hopefully the number of appointments they have are tailored to the number of vaccine they know they have. I think even if, um, you know, somebody signs up today and they don't get an appointment until February, Mm. gosh, even just knowing you've got that appointment, isn't that a great thing to sort of have on your calendar? And again, I think I'm I'm big on giving people hope and reasons to do things. So I I like the idea of people being able to sign up, even if it's February or even as, as late as March before they get the vaccine. It's coming.
1: And, Professor, that is something I think that's been missing throughout all of this is that goal, that achievable, reachable goal. I always tell people when they yeah. want to uh, you know, have results in the gym, you've got to give yourself a goal to to strive for, to to kind of get toward, and then you'll find yourself becoming more disciplined. You imagine if someone has an appointment and it's February and all they have to do, as we've been talking about, is be disciplined until February, still stay disciplined after February. But at least you mm-hmm. have that right there waiting for you if you do all the right things.
3: I think so. So everybody's, you know, the websites are going to crash. Everybody's going to go online today. But you know what? Sign up your neighbours, sign up your parents. If you're tech savvy, if you score Coachella tickets every year, help people <laughs> who, you know, maybe don't have internet access. And, and and that's actually, I'm kind of joking, but it's a serious concern, you know, because the people, many of the people who need this vaccine the most and the first are not going to be the people who are going to be, you know, able to do that. So, Think about who you can help in your community and family
1: use your ticket scoring superpowers in a good mm-hmm. in a good way this time <laughs> uh, now when it comes to uh, the rollout uh, yeah we mentioned obvious snags uh are expected wondering going forward what is your main concern and what is your biggest reason for optimism
3: well again i think my main concern is what i just said is okay. about the people who need it um who may not be tech savvy you know getting the help to do it and, and of course People having hesitancy about the vaccine. But my optimism is boy, people want this vaccine. You know, again, I can, in a way, I want the website to crash because I want people to really want this vaccine. People understand this is our way out. But we need high levels of uptake to develop herd immunity in our community. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of excited by what I think is going to be a huge optimis- optimism for these vaccines.
1: Uh, over the weekend, uh, we heard state officials recommend that a particular batch uh, no longer will be given out because of some reports of allergic reactions. So what happened and what happens typically with these allergic reactions?
3: Sure. Yes, that's right. That was in San Diego. Um, it was, they, uh, they had volunteers receiving the Moderna vaccine. And typically, you know, we do know that, you know, vaccines can have very rare allergic reactions. Um, I think at the moment we're sort of expecting about one in 100,000 shots people will get an allergic reaction. It's often going to be the people who have a sort of what I'm going to call a hypersensitive immune system anyway, the people who are allergic to shellfish or bee stings. Mm. Um, But in San Diego, they had 10 people in less than 24 hours. So it could, of course, just be completely chance and bad luck. But in an overabundance of caution, that batch was sort of recalled why it's been investigated.
1: And, and, but these people that, that have the allergic reaction, they're not just sent home, right? I mean, they're, they're there for a little bit to make sure that uh, if they get an allergic reaction, that someone is there to, to help them.
3: That's exactly right. If you get vaccinated now, you're, you're asked to sort of sit either in your car or in the clinic for 15 to 20 minutes, and you're monitored. And there's a clinician on site, because if people are going to get these these reactions they get them very quickly and although they can sound scary the good news is that we know exactly how to treat them you know epi pens steroid injections things that damp down that over enthusiastic immune response and the doctors on standby know exactly how to do that so it's it's pretty safe
1: professor can you tell us the difference between two-step vaccines that a lot of people are getting now and the one-shot vaccine that i keep hearing about from johnson and johnson
3: Yeah, so the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a similar type of vaccine as the AstraZeneca vaccine that's um, available in some countries, that's based on a viral vector, we say. It's like a common cold virus that delivers a spike protein. And Johnson & Johnson think that just one dose of their vaccine is going to be good enough to stimulate the immune system. So, you know, there's sort of differences between vaccines. We all know from our childhood (laughs) vaccinations that You know, some vaccines you just got one shot, other vaccines you got your card and you had to come back for two, three or four shots. So there are going to be these differences. And as we get more information, it may turn out that some of the vaccines we currently have that are two shot vaccines, we may find out that actually one shot is good enough. Um, You know, so that would be helpful as well
1: one more thing uh tomorrow there will be a new president of the united states uh mm-hmm. wondering uh professor paula cannon uh, what can we expect different from the vaccine rollout starting tomorrow and how do you expect the biden coronavirus task force to be different
3: oh boy yes i mean we're just going to get more input and guidance from the federal government to help the states and this is essential because of course vaccines are delivered at the local level But for planning purposes and money to help with the huge operations involved, the states need to know and be able to trust what and when the vaccines are coming and what and when the federal government is doing. So I'm optimistic that with this new commitment from the Biden administration, you know, the U.S. is going to start to look like the technologically advanced country we are. And hopefully we're going to move up the world vaccine table.
1: Fingers crossed. That's uh, Professor Mm -hmm. Paula Cannon, virologist with the USC Keck School of Medicine. Professor, thank you very much.
3: You're welcome, I Take
1: care. How clear do you think the difference is between a protest, insurrection, or riot? What about teens? you think they know the difference between the three? Civics teachers are having these conversations with their students. Find out how they're becoming teachable moments in 60 seconds. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill.
1: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, I'm mean, E. Martinez. The world tuned into the television on January 6th as Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. Now, those viewers included many teachers right here in Southern California. They watched the attack with their students in mind, playing for a real-time civics lesson. KPCC's Caroline Champlin talked to some teachers about this moment's place in their classroom and the future of teaching American history.
5: The Los Angeles Unified School District encouraged teachers to address the siege on the Capitol. Don Luong teaches eighth grade U.S. history at Gage Middle School in Huntington Park and committed all his lessons in the week after the attack to discussing the violence.
0: Our lesson this week is breaking down what is a protest, a riot, and an insurrection.
5: After going over the definitions, Luong showed his students a news clip from the Capitol. USA!
4: USA!
5: USA! He took a poll, and most students called what they saw a riot. Next, Luong showed an ABC News clip of Black Lives Matter demonstrations after the police shootings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling.
0: Overnight, hundreds of protesters shut down L.A.'s massive 405 freeway in both directions.
5: Responses to that clip were mixed between protest and riot. Luong says these kinds of conversations really get the kids' attention since they're so in tune with current events. Kalila Williams is a senior at Girls Academic Leadership Academy and agrees. Students
4: care. Especially if you're in the Gen Z generation, you have something to say about this.
5: And that, she says, has everything to do with technology.
4: It was all over social media, like the memes, the TikToks, like Instagram, Twitter. So you end up having an opinion in general, like whether or not you're like, well, I'm tired of seeing this on social media. You saw it, like.
5: To her disappointment... Her history class only spent a few minutes talking about the attack.
4: We could have had a full, like, week-long conversation about it,
5: honestly. And it isn't just because students have questions and want to learn more about what happened at the Capitol. William says students need help processing the violence and racism. Because considering the pandemic, some of them don't have other people to talk to.
4: We are going to school virtually. Online, in the middle of a pandemic, our mental health is already messed up. Like, half of the time, I'm sorry, but right now, you can't expect us to focus if there's all this stuff going on.
5: Multiple teachers I spoke with echoed Kalila that students have thoughts on politics they want to share. But a report from the Center for American Progress, a left-leaning think tank in Washington, D.C., suggests that civic education isn't getting as much attention as it could be. Nearly half of the students in California who take the AP government test don't pass it. A Pew poll from 2017 found that Americans' trust in the government is at a decades-long low. And federal money for civics education is only in the millions, compared to billions spent on STEM subjects. Brent Smiley, a middle school teacher at Sherman Oaks Center for Enriched Studies, pushes back on the idea that civics ed has deteriorated.
1: Oh yeah, I, I would completely disagree. I would say that the
0: civics instruction today is light years ahead of where it used to be.
5: It's not just memorization anymore, he says. The curriculum is more flexible and allowed him to take class time to teach current events like the Capitol siege.
0: These are the lessons that are alive right in front of us you know, as we're living it out.
5: Drené Jones, a teacher at King Drew Medical Magnet High School in South L.A., argues that civics education has been de-emphasized.
2: If you don't know how the country runs, how are you going to be an effective member of society? Are you just going to go to work every day, come home, sit on your couch and watch Netflix? Are you going to get in the game and complain? You know what I mean? You can't just complain. You got to know who to complain to.
5: That's a lesson, she said, that was lost on the insurrectionists.
2: All of those people who stormed the Capitol were somebody's student at one point. You have a bunch of individuals screaming, my vote counts. Yeah, but majority rules. If you don't understand that. Your social studies teacher failed you.
5: And that's why she's determined to help her students understand the everyday business of being an American. I'm Caroline Champlin.
1: Now, staying on the topic of civics education, a study by UCLA and UC Riverside researchers found that civics education falls short in California school districts. The uh, study is called Reclaiming the Democratic Purpose of California's Public Schools. And UCLA education professor John Rogers is an author of the study. Professor, uh, we just heard from students and teachers discussing civics and uh, civics education. And that comes as uh, we're one day away from President-elect Biden's inauguration and not long after the pro-Trump insurrection has stormed the Capitol. Before we get into your study, Professor, what are your thoughts on, on what they had to say?
0: I, I thought that the story included wonderful examples of high-quality civic education. Mr. Luang from Gage Middle School provided a, a way to think about um, how to take civic action in powerful ways, and he allowed young people to make sense of these differences between nonviolent protest, violent insurrection, et cetera. I thought Ms. Jones offered some helpful understandings of, of what it means to communicate dissent and how young people should understand where to communicate dissent. And then Khalila Williams, a student from Girls Academy, had some really insightful comments about needing space to talk and make sense of the collective challenges we all face that's part of what young people need. That's part of the purpose of public schools and a democracy. So I thought each of these examples was really powerful and spoke to the ways that civic education can make a difference in young people's lives.
1: And making that space is uh, very important, isn't it, uh, Professor? Because it's not just, as, as we heard in the piece, not about memorizing what happened and, and then applying it on, a, on an exam or a, or a quiz the next day. It's about processing emotionally what happened in a lot of cases.
0: Exactly. We, we all are part of a collective um, process in a, in a democracy, and that entails us trying to understand with others, sometimes with others with whom we disagree, the events that are unfolding. And we, we need to be able to make sense of them, and we need to be able to see how we can transform conditions that are making our lives painful or difficult or otherwise problematic.
1: There were a lot of events in 2020 and a lot so far in 2021. The pandemic that continues today, a wave of protests against racism and police brutality and national election, what we saw at the Capitol. I know it's a lot, but how should educators maybe best think about teaching these current events in a way that engages the entire classroom?
0: It's always important for educators to create space for young people to share what they're experiencing it's important for educators to establish a set of rules that young people understand how to talk with one another in respectful ways that are acknowledging each other's experiences and that are opening up opportunities for differences to emerge um, in ways that that allow young people to to engage with one another and, and be thoughtful and to deepen their understandings of the issues.
1: And one more thing before we get to your study, Uh, when it comes to civics classes today, I always feel that there is another person in the room, whether that person is there or not. It's the parents and and what their political beliefs are and their understanding of civics is how much are parents involved in this process with uh, civics teachers?
0: Well, a this has always been an important question, but it's particularly important in the context of remote learning, where sometimes parents literally are in the room with the students right, because yeah. they're they're in that that very room. Um, I, I, I think public schools are inherently about bringing together diverse groups of people who oftentimes are going to look at issues in very different ways, whether it's the parent and the student or different parents, different students, teachers have the the challenging task of creating a space where people can, can engage with one another in ways, again, that are respectful, that are thoughtful, that are examining facts and inviting young people to, to, to determine how they understand the world together.
1: All right, now to the study. You looked into how California schools are faring when it comes to civics education. How was that assessed in school districts and what did your analysis reveal?
0: Sure, we looked across all of the school districts in California and we wanted to see the extent to which school districts lifted up civics or democratic education as a goal. One of the things that we did was to look at the websites of each school district in the state to see whether or not in their websites, they talked about democratic development as part of the goals that their district had. And we were disappointed to see that only about 1 million of the 6 million students in California public schools attend districts where their districts talk about democracy, and democratic development as a core goal of what their district is trying to do. We also examined the local control accountability plans. These are plans that each district in the state establishes that lay out what they're trying to achieve and how they're going to invest in programs to achieve those goals. And we looked to see whether in those local control accountability plans, districts used words like democracy or civics or citizenship, and again, we were disappointed. Only about 13% of districts in the state even used any of those words, let alone use them in ways that spoke to powerful engagement.
1: Thirteen percent. the last thing- wow. that, yeah, that, that exactly. is a small number, yeah.
0: Yeah. The last thing we did was to look to see whether districts employed staff at the district level who worked in the area of social studies and hence were able to support teachers to promote civic learning. And we saw very few districts were doing that and far fewer were doing that than in areas like science or math or English, all of which are important. But we also want to be able to support social studies and civic education.
1: What did your research find for LAUSD?
0: Well, we looked across all the districts. We we do know that LAUSD um, has established a goal of promoting democratic education. This was a, a school board resolution that was passed a couple years ago. I think the district, to some extent, has taken a pause on advancing that goal, and I think we're at a moment now where it's important for them to to really focus in on that. In fact, there is a new opportunity to do that, which is that the State Board of Education in September, approved something called the state seal of civic engagement. And what this means is that when students across California graduate from high school, they can get a seal affixed to their diploma that says they did exemplary work related to civic education. Um, And so students that have done projects where they've examined issues in their local community, or they've made a difference in their local community could potentially get this seal. Los Angeles Unified School District hasn't yet developed a plan for how this will work. And I think that there are real opportunities for the district to move forward with that in powerful ways in the coming
1: months. We're talking to UCLA Education Professor John Rogers about civics education in California. Now, one of the study's key findings is that, uh, quote, there is a little staffing and infrastructure that supports the civics agenda. I'm just curious, is that a change from years past? There used to be more emphasis on civics in public schools back uh, when we were all kids.
0: I think it's gone through different periods. I think one of the things that we see today is that what gets tested often is what gets invested in that we have these accountability structures that focus almost all attention on English language arts um, development and development in math, both of which are, are incredibly important and both of which actually can support the democratic development of young people. But we've, we've, in in the process of focusing so much attention on those tested areas, we haven't given as much attention as we should to the democratic development of young people. And we see in our broader civic life today, the need for young people to learn how to communicate with others with whom they disagree, the need to examine information and understand what information is valid and what is not. Um, And and so I think that we're at a moment where we need to focus renewed attention on civic development and democracy as a core purpose of what public schools should do.
1: Professor, what would be the one biggest recommendation you have for improving civics learning in California?
0: Uh, if you'll give me two, I will Okay, say two, two. <laughs> we, we should, as a state, renew a commitment to democratic education as a goal, and we can do that by including democracy as one of the core goals within the local control accountability plans. And we need to, with that, provide training to teachers so that they're better able to advance these democratic goals um, that that everyone should be promoting.
1: That's John Rogers, UCLA education professor and an author of the study called uh, Reclaiming the Democratic Purpose of California's Public Schools. Professor Rogers, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you. I, I appreciate
1: it. More Take Two coming right up. Stay with us.
2: Why do Andy
0: Richter and fresh airs Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show?
4: Are you ready to have a good time?
0: Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super-secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Immigrants, we get the job done. Look how far right come. Down. Look how far
4: right come. Look how far right come get the job done. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. Immigrants, we get
1: the job done. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcast. Sammy Martinez. With Joe Biden set to be sworn in as president tomorrow, we're going to turn now to one issue that's a priority for him and one that is particularly resonant with us here in Southern California, and that's Immigration. As a candidate, Biden often talked about how he'd set himself apart from President Trump when it comes to paths for citizenship, deportation, and also the border wall. Well, today, some details have come out about planned legislation by the Biden team that would set up a multi-year path to citizenship for immigrants living in the United States right now. Joining us to discuss all of this and what immigration policy changes Biden hopes to make is Gene Reese, professor at the USC Gould School of Law and co-director of the USC Immigration Clinic. Uh, Jean, welcome back.
6: Hi, thank you.
1: Now, let's start with uh, what we know about President-elect Biden's immigration citizenship plan. What are the nuts and bolts of the plan, and can you walk us through how it would work?
6: Well, this plan, um, we don't you know, have, don't have the, all the details and have, haven't seen a draft yet, but it seems to grant a pathway to citizenship for people who are here without legal status um, and who are here without legal status as of January 1st, 2021, so that would be the cutoff date. Um, and uh, it would allow people to presumably get some temporary status, which usually means uh, work permit, um, for a certain number of years and then be able to apply to adjust that status to permanent residence and then after three years to be eligible to apply for citizenship. Um, and so the, you know, we don't have the details. Presumably mm-hmm. there would be requirements for certain, you know, criminal uh, good moral character um have to show that they don't have a a serious or violent criminal history. Um, I'm not sure if there will be a a presence requirement, so have been present in the U.S. for a certain amount of time. Um, Those are all kind of details that we don't have yet, but that's the the general gist of this proposed legislation is to be able to allow people who don't have another way to legalize their status um, be able to legalize their status.
1: So to be clear, yeah, people. it's still a process. People have to apply, prove things, uh, so it won't be one of these things where it's just wide open.
6: Right. And it has to, you know, pass through. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, are there any precedents uh, for a plan like this?
6: There are. I mean, there has been historically similar red, uh, legislation. Um, Reagan in 1986 um, passed the Immigration Reform Control Act, otherwise known as IRCA. And that gave similar um, legalization pathway to citizenship for about three million people who were otherwise undocumented. Um Another program, NACARA, uh, in 1997, about $1 million. One thing that's different with this program is that President Biden, according to what we've read so far, is not asking for... Uh, is not offering an ex- uh beefing up enforcement at the border as an exchange. So historically, for example, the the Reagan program in Urca, Nacara, um, the, there was a trade off built into it that there would be um, more enforcement at the border um, or more, uh, you know, more money going into enforcement as as part of the the law. And this is, does not appear to be the case with Biden's proposal.
1: When you said earlier it has to pass for us, I'm wondering if you think it will pass. what kind of bipartisan collaboration would have to happen for it to pass
6: yeah i mean i think that this uh will maybe get whittled down um to be a compromise but really i think it's promising that this is hopefully going to be introduced tomorrow um so that really in the first uh beginning of the administration this is this is a priority i think that's what happened with the, the obama proposed legislation is it just wasn't introduced soon enough and um, so, you know, historically immigration reform takes a really long time and is very contentious, but it has been done. And I think now more than ever, we have this awareness about these huge amounts of people who are here, including DACA recipients. I mean, another thing kind of hanging out there on the horizon is the uh, Texas versus United States case yeah. that's being decided in the district court by Judge Hannon. And the issue there is is DACA even a legal program? And I think if, if, uh, If DACA is determined in this litigation to be um, illegal, that's even more um, need for this comprehensive immigration reform that would also include people who currently have DACA And under Biden's proposal, people who currently have DACA can immediately apply for permanent residence. So they wouldn't have to get this temporary status. They would be eligible to immediately apply for permanent residence.
1: So considering the, the, the composition of the Supreme Court, how likely is it that DACA would be considered something that's legal?
6: Um, I think it'd be a close call. I think the Supreme Court purposely did not rule on whether or not it was legal uh, when it ruled that the Trump administration had unlawfully ended it. Um, and I think that that was on purpose and I think that it would be harder for the Supreme Court to find that it, it you know, based on the arguments that, that perhaps this is not, uh, you know, this should have been subject to, um, to, to notice and comment which is the the Texas argument. Now,
1: as you know, Professor, California is a home to more immigrants than any other state. Uh, What would a policy like this mean for us living in Southern California?
6: Um, I think it could mean a lot of things. Long term, it could bring, you know, over uh, two million, I think, uh, undocumented people out of the shadows, um, uh, provide them with the ability to um, vote, to have a say in the government. A lot of people who this uh, legislation would affect have already been here for a very long time. Who have family members, who have citizen children, or spouses who have paying, you know, sales tax and income tax, and so um, this would be, like I said, a way to give a voice to people who are um, contributing members of our community, but often voiceless. Um, and it would impact, I think, uh, family members who are US citizens who are in mixed status families, which is you know, a, a majority of the people in California, and provide that stability of knowing your father or your mother or your spouse or your sibling um, can't be taken away from you and separated um, by the government.
1: Now, one of President Trump's most divisive policies was his travel ban, mostly on uh, majority Muslim countries, and President-elect Biden has pledged to put a stop to it once he gets into office. Uh, Professor, what would the immediate effect of its repeal look like?
6: I don't know how strong the effect would be, given um, the COVID restrictions that are in place, um, for people traveling outside of the country. I think some of the countries on the travel ban list, uh, historically it's very hard to get visas from those countries. Uh, so that may not, we might not see a big impact in that way. Um, but I definitely think, again, this gives family members who aren't able to see their relatives, um, th- that possibility is now in place for their them to be able to see their relatives again. Um, but I think, again, with COVID, Covid, and uh, I, I don't think that we're going to see an immediate impact. Right. Um, but I think it'll be significant that it is, it is uh, repealed. Is, is it possible? Is it
1: possible that the spirit of the travel ban could be revoked, but the physical ban remains in place because of Covid?
6: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the ban, the the travel ban can be lifted, but there's still a application process. There's still an adjudicating officer who's going to be looking at these applications, and the CDC guidelines have been invoked by the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services to deny entry of people based on COVID. Yeah.
1: Now, President-elect Biden has said that he'll stop uh, all deportations within the first 100 days that he's in office. And we've seen reporting that prominent immigrants rights groups are pushing him to stick to that policy. How would this work on a practical level?
6: It's not really clear to me how it would work on a practical level. I think suspending deportations for 100 days could provide the opportunity for certain people who are slated to be deported, um, who may not have a way to stay in the country or legalize their status, but who have really sympathetic um, factors such as family in the US, no criminal history. Um, it could give the Biden administration an opportunity to provide prosecutorial discretion. So say, you know, we're not, we're not gonna deport you, we'll allow you to stay here. So we may not be able to give you legal status, but we won't act to, to remove you and we'll let you stay. Um, So uh, under the Trump administration, really, everybody has been an enforcement priority. Um, And so if if these deportations are not conducted in the first 100 days, perhaps in the Biden administration can go in and look at all these and say, all right, this person, we're going to exercise our discretion and say, we're not going to enforce that removal order. We're not going to execute the removal order. I don't know how it would. Um, pan out for people who are detained. Um, if you are, you know, the, the authority to detain somebody in immigration uh, in immigration detention is um, f- to execute a removal order. And so if their government is saying we're not going to execute a removal order, I don't know if that would allow people who are detained who would okay. otherwise maybe qualify for release.
1: Hey, Professor, can, yeah. can we, I have more questions to ask you. Can you hang out a little bit longer?
6: <laughs> sure,
5: sure.
1: All right, uh, that's uh, Professor Gene Reese of USC Gould School of Law. She'll be right back. Uh, More immigration questions when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
0: Hey, it's Brian, the host of the How to LA podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to
1: podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A Martinez. We were talking about what uh, immigration could look like under the Biden administration. We were speaking with Gene Reese, professor at the USC Gould School of Law and co-director of the USC Immigration Clinic. Uh, We we ended the the first part of our conversation talking about uh, deportations. Um, When it comes to the asylum process, professor, what changes do you expect to see the Biden administration make?
6: Um, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will make some changes to a lot of the new rules and regulations that were put in place under the Trump administration that really erode um, protections for asylum seekers. Uh, these changes, these rules will take longer to undo because they're subject to certain APA and notice and comment Um reviews, so it's not like the travel ban that can be undone with a pen on the first day. Um, But there are, for example, um, a lot of rules that were put in place that make it extremely hard for people um, coming from Central America, uh, fleeing gender-based violence, domestic violence, to um, be able to seek asylum. So um, I am hopeful that the due process kind of erosions that occurred under the Trump administration will be undone and restored under the Biden administration. I'm also hopeful for more of a discretionary approach to um, immigration court proceedings and asylum cases. Um, We had uh, kind of a blanket policy under the Trump administration of uh, not exercising discretion, um, not agreeing, um, you know, Filing appeals on a lot of cases that I think were not necessary. So, if somebody has a a, a merit a merit case for asylum, and the government can then just agree to that and, and not have to fight it um, at every step of the way, which is what we saw in this administration. It, um, and I, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I also, you know, the Remain in Mexico program is a controversial program that Biden has said he would end. And now I think we're seeing that that is going to take longer to be um, undone. Um, but that is a really harmful program that uh, needs to end so that people can um, seek asylum in the U.S. and not be you know, waiting in Mexico in, in pretty dangerous conditions. And for that's, a lot so, of the yeah, that's exactly
1: what I was going to ask you about. Wondering, though, <laughs> would that somehow would, would COVID affect that in some way?
6: Uh, Yes. I mean, there, you know, people are still being turned away at the border because of COVID, um, citing that as a reason for not allowing people to enter into the U.S., again, relying on CDC guidelines. Um, So I think that that is part of the reason I think politically and strategically, Biden is not going to undo the Remain in Mexico program on day one because he is fearful that that will lead to a surge of people at the border. Um, and I also think with COVID um, and that being used as a reason to turn people away, that is not going to be, that's not going to go away that Biden has expressed that that he's not going to change um, policy regarding COVID.
1: What about family separations? That policy uh, really became a symbol of President Trump's crackdown on immigration. As President-elect Biden mentioned how he would address this
6: um i've heard president biden say things like he's going to focus on reuniting families Um, separation at the border is still happening uh, not in the way it was happening um, in the trump administration under the zero tolerance policy but children and uh, women have been detained together and separated from men so families would be separated that way where men would go to a different detention facility Um, i think under the biden administration um the families, uh, if they you know, have uh, sponsors or people in the U.S. where they can go, um, can be released under humanitarian parole into the U.S. and so not be detained in these kind of family detention centers for women and children or separated from fathers or partners. Um, so that is one thing that can be done is just a, a more more exercise of humanitarian parole to people who are seeking asylum, as opposed to the limited exercise of humanitarian parole where we saw a lot more people being detained, um, who you know didn't have criminal histories and who were asylum seekers and who were family members.
1: What do you see, Professor, as the one thing the Biden administration will have the most trouble rolling back when it comes to the Trump administration's immigration policies?
6: Um, well, I think that there is a lot of uh, attorney general case law that came out under the Trump administration that um, is harmful and that is being challenged through the judicial processes. And that, um, I think, should be reversed, but it's going to be hard to change um, case precedent. Um, And then I think there are these rules and regulations that many people may not know. In December, there was a a bunch of rules that were put in place regarding um, procedural uh, procedural due process in immigration court that really eroded protections. So these rules and regulations, like I said, they just are going to take longer. There's going to have to be new proposed rules. There's going to have to be notice and comment and publication, and that's going to take longer. Um, So I guess setting aside the fact that the legislation itself is going to take a long time and probably be contentious, there are these rules and regulations that like the Department of Justice adopted or DHS that has adopted that is not going to be able to be quickly unwound and may not be a priority but on the ground in court it really does affect somebody's ability to um to seek asylum or other kinds of relief of removal
1: that's Jean reese professor at the usc gould school of law and co-director of the usc immigration clinic professor thank you very much thank you all right best show of the week It was the best show of the week. First show of the week, but who cares? Who's counting? Uh, Just go wherever you get your podcast. There you can hear it. There we will be, waiting to be heard by you. We're also on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at AmartinezLA. That's at AmartinezLA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram, for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then.